One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, it's one month since Russian tanks, planes and soldiers crossed the Ukrainian border, precipitating an unprecedented crisis in Europe and across the world. But what have we learnt in these four weeks? And what did analysts and commentators get wrong? Plus, later, I'll be speaking to columnist and leader writer for The Telegraph, Tim Stanley, about an under-discussed element to this conflict, religion. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 29, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Francis Sternley, our assistant comment editor. Welcome, Dominic. What are the, the latest updates from the front line? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So the, the big news today is that Russian forces are still encircled to the west of Kiev. Hang on, hang on. I'll, I'll say that again. That just sounds absolutely bizarre. But, but yes, the last couple of days, there's been a, a fairly successful flanking manoeuvre by the, by the Ukrainians west, west of the capital, um, they took the town of Makarov a couple of days ago, which was a very important town to the, to the west, about 20 k's west. And since then, they've been able to block off that that area, sort of between there, round to the northwest, around Irpin and um, Hostomel Airfield. And there's now a fairly sizable Russian force that is encircled to the northwest of the capital. Um, quite what happens next, whether whether uh, the Ukrainians seek, seek to try and squeeze that pocket or... Um, uh, if they've not got the strength to do that, we have to wait to see. But it is absolutely staggering that uh, a month into this thing, and we're now talking about Russian forces being encircled by by Ukrainians, which is um, not what we were expecting. Uh, other than that, in, uh, down south in Berdyansk, so this is a, a port city on the on the Sea of Azov, the 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 the, the bit of the Black Sea that is um, closest to Mariupol. So Berdyansk is just to the west of Mariupol. It's a it's a big port facility there. Um, there's a, a Russian ships, landing ships have been there uh, docked for the last few days, um, unloading stores and equipment. Uh, and something happened this morning. We're not sure if it was a ballistic missile or quite what, but one of the large landing ships has exploded. Um, two other ships, two other smaller landing ships uh, moved away very quickly, although one of those is on fire. I've seen footage of that. Um, but the, the, the large landing ship that, that, that exploded um it, I mean, it, there's no coming back from that. The question now is whether or not the actual port facilities have been damaged. That would be quite significant for Russia's effort there. Um, there are known to be fuel and ammunition storage facilities on the, on the port. Uh, and so if they've been damaged, uh, they could firstly create even more um, carnage. But also it's a, a significant blow to uh, to being able to offload any, any, of, the nor- uh, any of the Black Sea fleet uh, equipment in that area. I'll just take a pause there. And Francis, you know that, um, well, I know you want to speak a bit about the NATO meeting that's happening at the moment. Yes, well, that's going to be very significant. Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. Um, We're seeing uh, many of the NATO leaders are meeting today uh, to discuss the the, the latest on the conflict and what they can do to to try and support Ukraine and to punish the Russians for the invasion. Um, Before we go into that, though, I think it's just just to add to what Don was saying, it's, it's worth considering just the sheer scale of the Russian army collapse. Um, It's striking. I remember um, several weeks ago, Dom and I were talking about uh, Stalingrad on this podcast and how many Ukrainians were making comparisons to that battle. Um, One factor that we didn't discuss in relation to that, we, we were mostly speaking about 
the devastation wrought by that battle and the way in which it destroyed the city and the way in which it was house-to-house fighting. But an area we didn't talk about was that the uh, uh, Nazi soldiers that were in Stalingrad in the Second World War were encircled by the Soviets. And it would appear that there is an echo of that taking place with the battle in Kiev. Um, So an interesting parallel there. But as I say, just to contextualise this uh, in terms of the scale of the the Russian losses... um, the Russian military has already admitted, um, albeit by accident, that it has uh, lost over 10,000 men killed and 16,000 injured. That would be the equivalent of one and a half U.S. Army divisions, and the U.S. only have 10 in total. A 1,000 casualties a day, as Western intelligence believes, that would be Russia's worst rate of military losses since 1945 and the Battle of Berlin. Um, and... Not only that, but it would, if it continues at the current rate, be uh, uh, the sen- you know the, the, the numbers involved would be so substantial as to see almost ten percent of the Russian army completely um, out of action. Uh, the Russian army has about nine hundred thousand soldiers, which sounds like a lot, but when you consider the skies of Russia, it's actually quite small. And clearly, as we've talked about many times, it has not been uh, capable of of, of uh, um, of, of successfully defeating Ukraine in anywhere near the timescale that was expected. And just to speak to Dom's point, things have moved on to such a considerable extent now that we're no longer talking about when Ukraine will fall, but whether Ukraine can, can win outright. And that, of course, will completely change the conversation taking place today with Biden and, uh, and the other world leaders, including the British Prime Minister. Um, moving away perhaps from sanctions and more into further military aid that could well facilitate a complete Russian collapse in the coming days and weeks. And another, of course, benefit of that uh, will be moving uh, China perhaps further away from supporting Russia. So the steps that we've been seeing um, and the heroic efforts of the Ukrainians in recent weeks, one month in to this uh, terrible conflict, has has completely changed um, the worldwide strategy. And I think um, Putin is a very, very dire situation. But of course, that comes with its own risks, particularly when we're talking about military escalation, both in Kiev um, and in Ukraine generally, but also in terms of, uh, of, of, of escalation in Europe more generally. But I'll stop there. Dom, you spoke about the Ukrainian counterattacks um, across the country and the, the, the success they're having. Do, I mean, do you think do you think it's too soon to talk about the Ukrainians winning the, winning this war militarily, or are, are they just having some success in the last few days? I think it's far too soon to talk about them winning the war militarily. I think Russia has lost the war strategically and, and politically. Uh, forget the stuff about Nazis and drug dealers. What, what Putin was going on about was he didn't want NATO any closer to him. Well, that's, that's completely uh, been turned on its head. NATO expected to put more details today at the, the summit in Brussels, but we're expecting another four battle groups to be pushed into uh, onto NATO's eastern flank um, to add to the enhanced forward presence mission. So he's got more NATO. Uh, so he, he's, he's lost it strategically. Look at the position that the country is in. The stock market is open today. I imagine China's in there making hay and, and, and buying up the country. So the long-term future is, is gone. He's mortgaged the long-term future for some sort of short-term um, short-term gain that he that he can see, and I think only he can see, increasingly only he can see. Um, but but it, it is far too early to be talking about uh, any military win on on the battlefield. There's a, there's a long long way to go yet. These are reverses for Russia. Um, I, I don't know if they are they going to be permanent. I mean, who knows? A lot of it comes down to the flow of weapons, as we've discussed before. But but interestingly, I mean, this push this this encirclement around Kiev. The Russian troops there are thought to come from um, Russia's eastern military district which were the, the less well-equipped, or, or they had the numbers, but maybe some of the older, older equipment. Um, but the, the boss of, the, of that formation, Colonel General Alexander Chaco, he's been seen flying in and handing out medals and, and you know, slapping backs and all the rest of it, which is all good stuff. But uh, it's also a sign that things aren't going well if the boss has to turn up and, and start directing things. So, so the, the Colonel General Chaco is, is there to, to try and revitalise the, um, uh, the 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 effort and first of all to, to get out of this uh, of this trap that they're in but also i mean we, we've we've talked we had a brief the other night from western officials saying that six 
generals have been killed so far in this campaign, and Russia is expected to only have about 20 in the theatre, so so it's quite a high proportion. They'd be replaced, of of course, but it's still significant that six have been have been killed, and and that was ascribed to the need to get forward and start energising things and imposing their personality on the on the sluggish fight. Um, and maybe uh, Chaco turning up just north of Kiev is is an indication that that's still going on. Uh, it's certainly another another ripe target for um, for Ukrainian snipers. Can I just ask, Tom, how, how common is it for um, military generals to be killed in battle? It seems like something more familiar to us in the Napoleonic period or, or, or prior to that, but it's not something I recall ever hearing in Iraq or Afghanistan in, 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 in the modern theatre. Just how unusual is this? It is unusual, partly because we've there's thankfully not been that much fighting close to home for us to to really um, to really equate it to the way we would fight. Um, I mean, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we uh, as in UK, we lost. Uh, I think the highest rank was a lieutenant colonel and and equivalent. So, a wing commander was killed in. Uh, from the RAF was was killed in in Iraq. Uh, lieutenant colonel killed in in um, Afghanistan. I don't think there was any higher rank than that. Um, I mean, it, it's it's unusual. Partly since nine eleven, we've we've became obsessed with counterinsurgency, so we weren't doing that kind of heavy metal fighting. And uh, whilst generals gen- generally are not this far forward in a in a big conventional battle, when you're flinging heavy metal and high explosive around. I mean, it's, it's an inherently extremely dangerous place to be. Um, having said that, it, a lot of it comes down to the way you fight. So the, so the, generally the Western way of warfare is to um, trust and empower subordinate commanders because they're the ones that actually sort of toe-to-toe with the enemy so they can see what, what, what's unfolding in front of them and how they need to adjust their tactics. So, so the way the Westerns do it, we, we sort of push down or try to push down that um, devolved decision-making to the lowest level and and resource it, give people the resources and just say, look, here's the big picture, this is what I want you to get on and do. How you do it is up to you. Um, and, and in that model, the more senior, the, the generals and what have you, would, would stay further away because you don't want the old military expression of the, the long-handled screwdriver. You know, you don't want these people um, that can reach you through modern comms and satellites and all the rest of it. You don't want them saying, oh, I think you should go left-flanking here, fellas. And it's like, look, just get out of the way. I'm trying to deal with these maniacs in front of me. Um, Russia's way of warfare is much more rigid, and that's one of the reasons why we think, it's, um, why we think they've become bogged down. So they, they, they send decisions back up the tree. They, they do not use initiative at, at lower levels, or it's not, it's not sort of ingrained into their, into their way of warfare. Um, so decisions have to go back up the tree, uh, back up the chain of command um, for any kind of resolution. And therefore, as things get bogged down, the, the top of that decision-making process has to come forward and um, uh, firstly impose, impose his will. And also, if communications are poor, and we think, we think the Russians' radio nets just simply haven't been very, very good. There have been reports of them using Ukrainian um, civil mobile phone infrastructure, for goodness sake. Um, but if their communications are poor, then, then they need to go forward to, to, um, to be able to get into... A much closer range for the radios to work or to physically meet. So it is unusual, uh, but it comes down partly to it's, it's a it's a very very dangerous place to be a modern modern battlefield, and the the way that Russia fights their doctrine, the way they they train to fight is very different to the way we do it in the West. We're a month a month into the conflict now. I'd be interested to hear from both of you because um, obviously we had we had months and months of build up seeing the, the troop movements. Um, on the borders with, with Ukraine and the diplomacy surrounding it. What do you think you, you got wrong about the conflict and, and wrong about this? But, but equally, uh, what, what do you think you got right? Let, let's start with what, where, where we think that, you know, both, both of you looking at this, where, where did we think, you, you, what did you think you got wrong about this? I, I, to, to think that Vladimir Putin is irrational, I think, was, was wrong. So, so we, we weren't expecting, many people were not expecting this kind of fight. I mean, I personally didn't think that the invasion would happen on this scale. I thought there'd be a push into the uh, the contested regions to the east around the Donbass, and uh, partly partly for its own end, but also to secure the south, the southern corridor. Putin has made many claims to the to having this land bridge down to Crimea from Russian mainland. I thought that was that was the 
aim. It might it might still be. I mean, it might, they might be trying to threaten Kiev and, and elsewhere um, to then row back in any future negotiations. That might be what he's what he's after all along. But um, I think some of the comment before the war that um, that he wouldn't he wouldn't take military action because he's um, he's irrational or mad was was wrong. Um, I mean, I, I never I never thought that myself. Uh, he's he's perfectly rational in the way he sees the world. Um, he just went a lot further than I thought he would. But I th- so I think that idea that and and there's still still lingering sort of puddles of this uh, around. And we need we need to get over it, especially if we're now in the realm of discussing chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Putin thinks he's being entirely rational. He doesn't care that much for the body count, so he's prepared to take a lot more pain. Um, if we're thinking that, that they'll get to a certain level and he just he just he'll just have to sort of give up, um, that might be the case. But that level will be a lot higher than than we are prepared to take. And so I think this idea that that he's irrational is was wrong. Um, we just didn't. Uh, many people, myself included, just didn't see his rationality as he sees it. I think that'd be my big takeaway. I think I would just add to that. I, I don't disagree with what Don's saying, although I would say that. Um, his sort of rationality is in a, in a sense irrational um, on the basis of how we understand the world today um, and how that world best uh, operates. I mean, I've been very struck how in many ways, not wishing to, to blow our own trumpet on this podcast, but actually many of our assumptions have proven perhaps more accurate than some of the assumptions in the Kremlin, namely that we were right to assume that Kremlin would um, that sorry that Ukraine would resist. Um, we were right that uh, the weapons training that Britain had provided would be um, far more successful than Putin anticipated. We were right that the Russians would resort to brutality and misinformation if the conflict continued to escalate in a way in which it did not desire. We were right to say that Putin may well begin to uh, threaten some sort of nuclear conflict. Um, and and so actually, in many ways, um, we've, we've been second guessing more accurately, I would say, um, than the most, um, the direction of travel of this conflict. And that's why I do feel um, fairly confident that, w- that we should feel some optimism for the way in which the Ukrainians are fighting back and are resisting. Of course, the main caveat to that being um, that uh, Putin may well escalate this war further in the sense of using chemical weapons or um, perhaps uh, by further threatening um, some sort of nuclear retaliation either within Ukraine or on the West generally. Um, but uh, I think generally speaking, um, the to, 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 to go back to your original question about the ways in which we've been, we've been wrong, I think w- just one other um, would be that many, many people um, thought that this conflict would be over very quickly. And I would probably include Putin and China in that. Um, There's been a lot of talk about the way in which China um, was involved in conversations about the timing of this, so not to to coincide with their Winter Olympics. Um, um, But also the the, um, hope, I think, within uh, those two countries that this conflict would... Um, be speedy and that any sanctions and uh, uh, suppressive measures by, by the West would be watered down by the fact that the conflict would be over very quickly. Um, and I think that they probably assume that Zelensky would um, would flee the country and that thus the country would capitulate fairly swiftly. Um, many Western commentators believe the same um, and mis- misjudged um, how firmly the, the Ukrainians would resist. So I think that would just be another example of, 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 of a fundamental misunderstanding, one that has been echoed not only within the West, but also actually within the Kremlin itself. And uh, considering the impact of, of this conflict on, on Russia internally and, and on the West and the West's cohesion, do you think, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of double-part question really, but do you think we're in a new uh, Cold War? And if so, what What's different about this Cold War to the previous one? Well, I think we should hope that we're in a new Cold War because if it becomes a hot one, I think we'll all know about it very quickly. Um, but yes, I do. Um, I think that's been one of the most interesting um, elements of, of this uh, conflict is I think that, it, 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 as we said in the very first episode of this podcast, um, 
that we have uh, it redefines our understanding of the previous 30 years and it redefines the era of which we are now entering I, I do think there's a very strong chance that um, the era that we knew up until 1989 or the early 1990s will become known as uh, the first Cold War or Cold War One and that we are entering Cold War Two, um, rather than, as some commentators were, were, were arguing and continue to argue, that we are in actually the opening stages of World War Three. I do hope that is not the case, um, although those who do argue that make several interesting points, which is that perhaps this does um, have more echoes with um, the Anschluss at the beginning of, uh, of the Second World War um, when uh, and, and the invasion of, uh, of Czechoslovakia that later followed that um, and that the West was still in denial for a prolonged period of time about the full extent of Hitler's ambitions and in the same way those commentators argue that, that we have uh, misunderstood or, or misinterpreted deliberately the uh, in, uh, Putin's intentions as laid out in his uh, essay back in July to effectively rebuild part of the old Russian Empire, which would include Estonia and Latvia, um, and uh, as well as Ukraine. And if that is the case, then, then, then this is just the opening salvo in a much more protracted and, and prolonged conflict. Um, uh, I think it's too early to say that. And even if that was Putin's intention, then I think that the, uh, the way in which this war in Ukraine is going uh, greatly diminishes the likelihood of there to be uh, a, 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 a further escalation um, in terms of a traditional warfare anyway. Um, because uh, just clearly the Russian army isn't up to resisting the combined fight uh, might of, of NATO in traditional combat. Um, but just to just to, to your question about uh, about um, this, this sort of new phase and whether whether we need to treat it as a Cold War, I think um, you know we're, we're living in a different era in the sense that. We're used to stories lasting a short period of time before we, we 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 move on. We expect a quick conclusion to to any conflict, as I say. Um, and and if we really are in a second Cold War, you know, it took us decades to defeat um, the Russians and their allies last time, and it may well take a similarly long period of time if you have a country that's not able to overthrow its leader. And so, arguably, the West has to relearn the virtue and the value of patience. And I think that's going to be very very challenging because we've not been used to that. In, in, in previous, previous uh, or, or recent years. Um, so that would be my thoughts on that. Thanks, Francis. Um, Dom, do you want to come in there? Yeah, all I'd say is that I'm not convinced we're in a second Cold War yet. I think, we're, I think we're on the cusp of it because at the moment, I don't think there's a, a massive clash of uh, values and ideology uh, between us and Russian society. I think what there is, this is brought to a head the difficulties with the the small coterie, the kleptocracy that Putin has built up and surrounded himself with, which is a very small part of society, tiny part of society, quite a small part, I think, of the political establishment. But they're very practical, uh, pragmatic, so they, they kind of go, most people go with the flow. So I think we need to get, get beyond Putin um, and then see if actually we are in this clash of uh, civilizations, if you like, um, with Russia. And at that point, it, so if, if Putin was out of the way for whatever reason, and that might be tomorrow or it might be in 20 years' time, um, but after Putin, if Russia has fundamentally changed and we're back to a clash of, of values and, and ideology and systems, then, then we'd be into a proper Cold War. Um, I think at the moment we, we've just got it's brought to a head um, all the issues with this, this sort of the, the gangsterism and this, this clique at the top of Russian society—they've got a, this stranglehold over over what, what is a, a great country—and we should, we should. I just think we should just hold out for a little bit longer, and and before we cast judgment on on the whole system, I think we're just looking at it through through Putin, which obviously a big, a big thing in the way. But um, I don't think I don't think Putin is Russia. I think that's a very valid point. Um, and I don't disagree with that. Although I think, and, and of course, one of the great unanswered questions of this of this conflict is to what extent the Russian people support it truly. To what extent can is it possible for the West to drive a wedge between Putin and the oligarchs and the kleptocracy? Um, and the Russian people. Clearly, it has been a pillar of Western strategy to try and appeal directly to um, the, the Russian people. Um, but we don't know the success of that. And, and we've, I've, I've read multiple pieces that have argued different sides on that point. Um, 
as I've mentioned in a previous po- previous podcast, I think one of the most challenging things will be that even if there is not perhaps as widespread support within Russia of Putin as we like to think is, um, or sorry, not as we like to think, but as we as is often assumed. Um, it will be very difficult for people to resist that, not only because of the, the, the nature of the state, but also because so many of um, powerful or, or wealthy, should I say, middle class people have left Russia and continue to do so in massive numbers, some 200,000 um, in, in, in recent times. Um, usually in the past, historically, you have to have um, a, a sort of elite in the wings that would be waiting to take power in some sort of revolution or coup. And what we don't know is whether that realistically exists in Russia. There is some evidence that it does and there is some evidence that it doesn't. Um, but that is one of the biggest differences between, say, this new Cold War, if we wanted to describe it as such, and a previous Cold War, is that in the previous Cold War, people could not leave that block. Thus, when you had countries like Czechoslovakia, um, um, who uh, were um, able to eventually escape communism, the elite there, led by Václav Havel, were effectively able to assume power very quickly, um, and they had formally been suppressed by the regime, but they had been, and they had not been allowed to leave the country. Now, Russians who disagree with the regime are not only able to leave the country, they were actively encouraged to do so. Um, and that is a big difference. And, and we don't yet know the true ramifications of that. But it will be something that will have to be a major pillar of the Western strategy moving forward is really understanding how many have left and how much of a real opposition there is within Russia. Um, because at the moment, I think that is, as I say, one of the great unanswered questions. Thanks. That's incredibly detailed comments on Russia and Russian politics and society. Could we look a bit at the West, starting with NATO? I mean, I think it was in 2019 that Macron said, Emmanuel Macron, the, the French um, head of state, said that NATO was in danger of becoming brain dead. It feel, obviously, it feels three years on, we're in a completely different situation. How, how has NATO changed and responded to this crisis? Well, I mean, we're going to see a demonstration of that today. That NATO leaders are, are meeting right now in, in Brussels. Um, the first thing that we've seen is defence spending commitments go up. Um, we've seen NATO and other non-aligned countries supplying lethal aid and humanitarian aid into um, into Ukraine. We've seen Germany cancel Nord Stream two, which I know is not as kind of NATO thing, but it but it, it all it's it's all the way of wielding power in, power in the modern modern world. So. I mean, it has brought NATO together. NATO's always... I mean, NATO stumbles from crisis to crisis. Since NATO was, was created, um, its death knell has, has always, is always just around the corner. I mean, you know, it's a crisis time for NATO. It's got five more years to prove its value or it's... It's been going on forever. Um, it seems to, be, seems to be pretty resilient, to be perfectly honest. Now, there's always um, conflict and discussion and disagreement. And, of course, Russia will, and other countries will, will, will point to these things. But if you get a a group of 30 countries together, of course you're going to have disagreements. I mean, that's, that's how these things work. Um, so I, I think this, this idea that, that NATO is fragmented and, it, and it's split on supplying of aid and arms and, and, and what have you, it's not split. I think it's just, just some countries, for either domestic reasons or for, for, for other reasons, they, they just don't want to sort of join in that bit. But it's a pretty resilient club. And I think it's drawn closer together through this crisis. I mean, you, you, you test the metal. You see the, the, the real strength of something when it's placed under extreme pressure. Um, and NATO is one of, the, one of the international bodies that has been placed under extreme pressure over the last month. And I think what it's done is it's, it's galvanized the group. It's, it's made them realize, um, if they needed reminding, what they're for, what the values are for, what the club's all about. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very helpful to be able to say to be able to point to um, what, your, what your club is for. And, um, and we've had a, a great demonstration of that in the last four weeks. So it really has drawn NATO together, I think. And, and of course, uh, the, the, um, one of the big sort of question marks around NATO prior to this was where, what, what its significance would be if there was an escalation on, the, on its eastern flank. And I think we have, we have seen that. Um, 
and one of the core elements in which <laughs> the Western world is, is different from Russia is this kind of discussion, debate and, and tensions to some extent within, uh, within NATO. And I think we should, we should celebrate that. Um, although I would say that one of the challenging things that NATO has now that perhaps, again, trying to distinguish it from the previous uh, uh, Cold War, if that's the right way of conceptualizing this, is that um, in the previous incarnations of NATO, um, or at least earlier ones, it, it, it wasn't quite so stark that when you have countries such as Turkey um, uh, being a part of it in terms of the values that, that, that NATO is supposed to hold. I mean, Turkey does not uh, align in many key areas uh, with um, the current sort of democratic, anti totalitarian anti uh, strongly nationalistic undertones of NATO. It is the opposite of that, and yet it continues to be one of its core members. So that does make it more challenging um, as a kind of bastion of the free world if we articulate NATO in that way. Um, and just as a sort of an additional thought to that, whilst I don't disagree that, um, with Dom's point that NATO has been strengthened by this and more unified, I do think it's also been very striking that over the course of this conflict, it's not really been the big bodies. It's not been the European Union. It's not been NATO that's led this. It's not even been the president of the United States, which, which you would normally uh, look to as the, uh, as the leader of the free world. It has been individual sovereign nations, uh, not least Britain, perhaps particularly Britain. That's certainly the Ukraine's view that has been uh, supporting uh, uh, um, the Ukrainian struggle and has really been been um, making individual policy decisions to support the Ukrainians rather than everything being done in a sort of centralised, uh, rather languid way. Um, and, and that goes from supplying weapons, that goes to, of course, Germany saying that it's going to rearm and, and cancelling Nord Stream 2. Um, that goes to the new collective alliance between uh, um, uh, Poland and Britain and several other Eastern countries. These are decisions being made by sovereign governments, not in big international bodies. And I think that's been a really interesting trend and one that was not really been being talked about enough in relation to this, that in some ways this conflict, I think, has reminded people as the virtues of, of national sovereignty over collective enterprises. Um, that's not to in any way, as I say, un undermine the importance of, 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 of these collective bodies. By goodness, they're absolutely vital. Um, but it has been an interesting trend and, and something that I think Boris Johnson was rather cack-handedly alluding to in his speech that he got criticised for when he compared um, the Ukrainian struggle to Brexit. I think his more broader point, and this is, these were the remarks of the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, is his broader point is that, is that this is about freedom of sovereign nations that's at stake um, and and I think there's some truth to that and just looking to the future we we're one month into this conflict how do both of you think it may develop over the next days and weeks and, and even months well I think we we've spoken many many times about the the, the the races the race that's going on can can the weapons go into to keep Ukraine in the fight before Russia can extract such a horrific humanitarian toll that um that President Zelensky just has to try and bring it to a halt. Um, I think I think that's going to be more marked. I think the um, the fact that we see Russian troops digging in, digging trenches, means that they are in some areas turning their backs on any any idea of, of advancing and trying to gain territory and gain any kind of um, political advantage that way. Um, I, so I think I think it's reducing to. To a much more static and attritional phase of the war, it'd be very interesting to see um, that. I mean, the next phase of arms shipments, where where that's directed. So at the moment, it's all in the anti-tank, um, primarily anti-tank, a little bit of anti-air fight. Now there is effectively ish a no-fly zone already over Ukraine because the, the Russian air force that, that's flying mainly doing so at night, mainly firing their missiles from the airspace of Russia and Belarus. I mean, they, they are conducting sorties inside Ukraine, but it's not not a huge amount. But these long-range missiles and artillery are coming in, um, and that, that, I think, is the next, the next area to be, um, to be looked at. So I, I actually had a phone conversation with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, this morning, and we were, we were talking about this, and, and he was saying that we, you know, it's still in that anti-tank bit. We're still there at the moment, but it won't be long. Next, next few weeks when it starts to transition to, okay, what can you do now? What can you f use? What can you uh, fire to, to see and then have an effect 
um, 30, 40, 50 k's away, where these artillery systems are based that, that's, that's shelling Mariupol and Kharkiv and elsewhere. And I think that will be the next, the next phase. So when you see um, some heavier weapons going in or you know, more complex weapons that, that take training, if, um, if Ukrainian soldiers come out of Ukraine and are trained elsewhere, that's a, that's a, a different phase um, but I think that's where it's heading. So it's a static, attritional, but Ukraine's going to try and take the fight or needs to take the fight to, to stop th- this artillery killing its civilians. And of course, the other thing that we've got to be sensitive to is, is, is and we hope that it doesn't escalate in this manner, but is this use of chemical warfare that has been being warned by the intelligence services now for several days um, that like in uh, Aleppo in Syria during the Syrian civil war, um, the Russians may well, if they're desperate, use that. And if that, uh, those weapons, and if that does happen, then of course this will be a major um, shift in gears in this conflict in the most sort of tragic and, and, and brutal way imaginable. Now, of course, there are, there's a many unanswered questions about what the West would do to that, what it has in its arsenal to counter that in terms of perhaps sanctions or, or, or further military support. Um, but uh, either way, it would appear, and this has been one of the, the areas in which particularly President Biden has been criticised, it would appear that even if there is a chemical um, escalation, chemical warfare, be, the, the, the West will not intervene and risk um, um, further escalation with Russian forces. That would be, if that takes place, um, uh, you know, we would be witnessing people effectively, it's just horrific to consider, people being gassed in Europe, I mean, and and dying on European soil as a consequence of these awful weapons and us watching that and seeing that daily on our news screens. And uh, I think, God forbid, that that if that were to happen, but we have to ask very hard questions. I'm sure they are being asked about what that means for this conflict. Um, Will the West just stand by if that takes place? Um, I think there'll be immense public pressure for more to be done if it is if if, if that were to occur. Um, but we will have to see. But let's hope it doesn't come to that. I just have one more question before we before we sum up. I think, and that's uh, we've spoken about the, the the military and the potential diplomatic ways in which this conflict could change and develop. But of course, we've also seen a huge human cost and the, the millions and millions of people who fled from Ukraine to surrounding countries. Um, what does the future look like for them? Well, I think uh, the in the short term, there are millions of Ukrainians, um, particularly in Poland, of course. I think there's now approaching two million in, have been taken in by Poland, which is extraordinary. Um, and um, we'll, we'll be covering much more of that on our desk in, in, in the coming days and weeks. Um, we've, we've, we've had uh, um, Stephen on the ground there um, actually interviewing very senior Polish politicians and, uh, and refugees who are there. Uh, as I say, in the short term, I think um, many of them will be hoping to return to their country uh, and helping to rebuild it. Um, that is part of the reason why um, they have gone to Poland rather than perhaps seeking to go further afield, including um, Britain, um, is that they want to be in a position to return as swiftly as possible. Whether that will actually be able to be occur, however, is, um, is, is another question entirely. And that does pose very significant domestic questions, not only for Poland, but for all European countries that are taking in such large numbers of, of, of refugees, is, is how do you integrate um, Ukrainians into, into society um, a, 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 on, on those numbers? And, 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 and how do you keep up the, the, the sort of the, the pressure as well on, 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 uh, on Russia and, and on the world, not to allow the Ukrainian conflict just to be something that is continuing to, to roll on in the background and that we sort of adjust to uh, as part of just what we expect. And, and, and of course, there is a danger of that when we become too adjusted to seeing people leaving in large numbers and just accepting that Ukraine is a battlefield and will continue to be so. Um, so I say those are two key questions that will um, be at the um, uh, priorities for being discussed in, in diplomatic circles, as well as just considering how further to, to, to damage Putin's credibility and, 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 and the Russian military effort. Tom, I'd like to, to give you the final word here. Um, as, a, as a former soldier, served for many, many years, what, looking back over the past month, what stands out most for you? Well, over the last, last month... 
Um, what stands out for me at the sort of tactical level is how surprised we were, how surprising it has been to see Russia fail, um, or Russia is failing. Russia's just been unable to do combined arms manoeuvre, unable to knit together all the little building blocks that make, uh, make up an armed force and an armed campaign, um, integrating your soldiers and your engineers and your ships and your, your planes and drones and, and everything else. They've just, just shown they're not able to do that. I know, you know, I'm going to mangle the quote, but um, I think it was Lenin who said, uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, and they seem to have gone for that. They, they don't seem to have moved on. They just think heavy numbers will, will win the day, and it, just, and it just doesn't. So I think I was very surprised that they um, had, had looked around the world over the last decades of conflict, particularly in 2020 when they supported Armenia in, uh, in their war with uh, Azerbaijan, and we saw the devastating effect of the TB2 Barakta drones that Turkey supplied, and they didn't hugely learn from that. And it's exactly those same drones supplied by Turkey that's now causing so much damage to them. So they just, I was very surprised that Russia just hadn't learned. They just hadn't sort of moved on. It was still, still the old, old Russia. Um, yeah, that was surprising at a sort of tactical level. And then at the, at the, at the much bigger level, um, I think, I think it was, I think it was gratifying to see and to underline, and this is worth remembering in the future when people start getting bored and, and this drifts from our news agendas. We, we can't allow that to happen. That happened in Afghanistan and, and we saw what happened at the end there. But we need to remember that, that armies don't fight wars. Nations fight wars. It's just the, the army that does the shooty bang bang stuff. There's a lot of politics, there's diplomacy, there's society, there's culture, there's everything involved. If you want to win a war and... If you go into war, you want, to, you want to win it quickly because people get hurt and killed. So if you're, going to, if you're going to engage in war, you need to get it out of the way as soon as possible. And that takes the whole of the nation to lean into it, the whole of your society. Ukraine are doing this right now. There's actually been a fairly impressive response, I think, from the West. But we cannot allow that to, to drift and our attention to wander uh, and just allow Ukraine to sort of get on with it and let us know when it's all over. And so I think we need to remember that and, and have it underlined in the next few months. And I think it's going to be months. But it's, yeah, it's not armies that fight wars. It's nations that fight wars. Earlier this week, I spoke to Tim Stanley, a columnist and leader writer at The Telegraph. He'd written a really fascinating article entitled We Ignore Vladimir Putin's Orthodoxy at Our Peril. So I started by asking him, what is Russian orthodoxy? I think we've got to understand how many Russian Orthodox see themselves in their faith in order to understand what Russia is doing. Orthodoxy very literally translates as right belief. And the history of the world uh, to the Russian Orthodox is one of the right beliefs being increasingly betrayed and pushed to the margins. So to begin with, uh, after Jesus Christ and the foundation of the church, of the Christian church, you have a brief period in which the Christian world around Europe is united under the Roman Empire. It's then fractured with the end of the Roman Empire into West and East. Really, the East, based in Constantinople, dominates Christianity. And Christianity is a collection of, of different local devolved churches. By the end of the millennium, however, Rome has begun to resurface and try to reassert its authority. The Orthodox kick against that and resist, and the result is a great schism, and the two churches separate. As for the Russians, well, Volodymyr, the king of the Rus, converted to uh, Orthodoxy in the 10th century, and what you start to see is the authority of the Orthodox Church move further and further eastwards. Constantinople uh, was eventually conquered by the Muslims, so Orthodoxy's center of authority begins to shift to Moscow. So to bring it all up to date, what, you, what you've got is a history of Christianity fracturing. You've got the Orthodox believing that they are the, the repository of the true faith. And you've got the Russian Orthodox seeing themselves as the inheritors of the Roman Empire, that Moscow today is what they call the Third Rome, that spiritual authority has shifted from Rome to Constantinople 
to Russia. And what, the, what is being defended and what is being fought over in this war is actually right belief. It is not simply Russian nationalism, but it is actually a spiritual mission. And you mentioned in that how Vladimir was king of, of Rus, and that, that starts in Kiev. So can we bring Ukraine into this? How does, how does Ukraine relate, relate to, 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 to what you're saying? Now, the irony is that Putin claims that Ukraine's not a real country and that the two peoples were united in ancient Rus. And to a large extent, that's true. But Ukraine, in that sense, actually predates Russia. So Ukraine as a recognizable concept, as a, a, a Viking state uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries, is, is originally located around Kiev. So Ukraine predates Russia. Ukraine then expanded uh, eastwards and northwards. The result is that that initial eruption of, of orthodoxy uh, in, in Russia actually begins in Kiev, not in Moscow. So Moscow is claiming authority over Kiev, but actually Kiev is where it all began. Four years ago, the Orthodox Church in, in Ukraine split from Moscow. Um, can we talk a bit about that? What's, what's, let, let's place this all in, in, in the last five years. What's the place of the Orthodox Church in, in modern Russia and how does it relate to the, to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? The dream and goal since the end of the Cold War for uh, the Patriarch of Moscow and for much of the Russian church has been to reunite the Orthodox people of Russia. And that means keeping Ukraine within the stable. But since its own independence uh, in 1991, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has increasingly tried to assert itself as a national church. And in 2018, uh, its independence was recognized by Constantinople. So it's a much smaller church, by the way. It's about 700 parishes uh, have joined the Ukrainian breakaway church, whereas thousands are still linked to Moscow. Nonetheless, it's a small but so substantial portion of Ukrainians uh, now take their authority and their lead not from Moscow, from Patriarch Kirill, but instead they take their lead from the Patriarch in Constantinople. That means that this invasion Part of the motivation behind this invasion is to reunite those churches. And I think it's a fairly safe bet that if the Russians win, the new national Ukrainian church will probably be suppressed. So you mentioned in that Patriarch Kirill. Can we talk a bit about the characters um, in and around this? So Patriarch Kirill, uh, Vladimir Putin as, as well. What's, what's Putin's relationship with, with the Patriarch? Putin's personal religion uh, is a little hard to judge because you have to sift mythology from fact and you also have to sift, you, you also have to recognize that Putin's political personality has developed over time in order to justify himself staying in power. The, the official story is that Putin was uh, baptized by his mother during the Soviet Union, uh, that he has always worn a little cross, uh, which uh, is a baptismal cross and which apparently survived a fire. So it's almost like an icon. It has near miraculous properties. And Putin uh, is supposedly a, a devout uh, Orthodox. But the political relationship between Putin and Orthodox Church really takes place uh, in the early 2010s after Patriarch Kirill had become the new Patriarch of Moscow. Kirill's whole approach to the Russian Orthodox Church was to say, we need to rechurch Russian society. We need to re-educate Russians about their past and bring them back to church. And we need to create a new solid relationship between church and state. Around the time that Kirill was beginning this project, Putin's popularity began to suffer. Around 2012, 2013, there were a series of protests that could well have brought him down. The church initially was sympathetic towards the protest, but then Kirill, it seems, saw an opportunity to rebuild the church-state relationship and so threw his weight firmly behind Putin. Putin has repaid that by doing things such as restoring lost church property, by promoting Russian orthodoxy in schools, and also by uh, passing legislation related to uh, homosexuality, abortion, etc. Oh, and also trying to limit the influence of American evangelical groups uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses. So in other words, in the last 10 years, you've seen church and state come together in a personal alliance between Putin and Kirill, uh, who both really want the same thing, which is the restoration of, as they would see it, Russian greatness. And why do you think we in the West, I mean, it's taken us, I think, 15 or 16 podcasts to actually address this question and look at it in more detail. Why do you think we ignore or we don't even see the religious aspects of this, of this conflict? Western society is overwhelmingly secular and post-Christian. 
Um, there's still a lot of people who believe here, and my golly, faith plays an important role in Parliament where I'm standing right now. A lot of our MPs are religious. But frankly, religious literacy has declined. And as we have come to become real consumerists and materialists, we sort of assume that everyone the world over thinks the way we do and wants what we want, that they see life, they see politics in terms of uh, cutting taxes and making people richer, etc. We don't realize first uh, what Russians went through in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War and under the Soviet period. We don't realize uh, the sense not just of material impoverishment, but spiritual impoverishment, and how Russians have been trying to rediscover themselves in the last 20 or 30 years. And it's as if they're speaking a different language. Uh, it's hard for us to comprehend that they that when Putin says, I believe in one Rus, and I believe in the restoration of a Christian empire, it's hard for us to believe that he means it. But of course, the proof that he means it was the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and it's been a wake-up call. We might not take faith seriously, but across the world, there are many parts, many politicians who really do. We, we've talked about the importance of this, but are we able to sort of put a number on it? Like, how important is this? Is it is it at the heart of the project, or is it just an incredibly important um, aspect of it? I think it's absolutely critical to what's going on. Something like 75% of Russian society describes itself as orthodox. By the way, only a tiny proportion actually go to church. It's, it's not a well-church society, but it's a society which really does define itself as orthodox. So if you want to understand what's going through the minds, not just of Putin or the patriarch, but the, but the ordinary soldier, you need to grasp this. You, you need to understand this history of this sense of orthodoxy being persecuted and as having a global mission and as having a claim over Russian holy lands. Uh, it isn't mere propaganda. It is genuinely what a lot of people believe. You also need to understand it because it, it helps to it, it helps to further under explain the tragedy of what's unfolding, that you'll have orthodox fighting orthodox. And many orthodox people don't know what to do. Some are retreating into pacifism uh, and saying thou shalt not kill, and they're trying to stand apart from the war and argue against it. Uh, but they can't. Uh, ultimately, in, in order to force unity upon the region. Uh, Putin has actually created a civil war between believers. And just my final question, you've touched on it a little bit there, but how has this invasion gone down within within the Russian Orthodox Church and, and also within the wider Christian world? It's difficult to judge how the invasion has been received within the Russian Church because we we can't take seriously propaganda claims at face value. So it's very, very difficult to tell. Within the wider Christian church, there has been overwhelming condemnation uh, of the invasion and uh, a sense that it has, it has crossed a moral line. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Sophie Coe.